It's great to be with you again. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. That's chapter 2, verse 23. And you can find that on page 838 of the Bibles underneath the seats. And uh, I would just like to say, if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, feel free to take one of the black ones under the seats as our gift to you. We would love for you to have one that you can read for yourself at home. Uh, That's no problem at all. We would love for you to be able to have access to God's Word. Well, every week we take a section of Scripture and just read through it and try to understand what it says and what it means for our lives. And so we're going to be continuing our study of Mark, and we're going to be covering the rest of chapter 2, the first six verses of chapter 2. And we come to a very exciting moment in Jesus' ministry. If you've been following along, the section that wherever he goes. And remember that part of their skepticism is simply because Jesus is not who they expected him to be. They wanted another Pharisee. They wanted another person to follow all their rules, to submit to their religious traditions many of which were meticulous add-ons to the Mosaic Law. They wanted a Messiah that would overthrow the Roman with military power and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. Well, Jesus at this point has turned many heads just about everywhere he's gone, drawing huge crowds to himself through his teaching and by his miracles. And if you remember, we talked about how oftentimes his miracles are done out of compassion for those that he's teaching. And they're done not to be a spectacle on their own, but to support the teaching that he's doing. His primary mission is his message, which he announces in chapter 1, that the kingdom of God has arrived. This is most clear when he casts out the demons in the synagogue of Capernaum, and when he heals the paralytic. He specifically tells those who are watching that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He tells the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. The things that Jesus did were just astonishing. And it's no wonder the Pharisees didn't take it well. Because as he goes about teaching and performing miracles, their self-righteousness and religious pride is exposed. They don't take kindly to Jesus. Because he clearly exercises an authority much greater than theirs. Authority is a major theme in the Gospel of Mark, as is identity. So over and over again, we see Jesus demonstrating the authority of God, as is the case in healing the paralytic or simply by proclaiming his authority, which we'll see him do in our passage today. Our passage this morning documents the fourth and the fifth conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in this short 34 verses stretching from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to 3, 6. So far, he's ruffled their feathers by forgiving sins, in chapter 2, 1 through 12, by eating with tax collectors and sinners, in verses 13 through 17, by feasting instead of fasting, in 18 through 22. And in our verses today, the conflict will be over the matter of the Sabbath, Let's read our passage together now and see what God has to teach us through Jesus this morning. 
Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we read that the Pharisees intend to kill Jesus. That's what they mean by destroy Jesus. They simply mean kill him. But from this point forward, the shadow of the cross would be in view. But what is it about this event specifically that gets the Pharisees so riled up? Well, to understand that, we need to unpack the passage a little bit more. So this morning I have three questions that we'll try to answer that I think will help us understand what's going on here. And these three questions are my outline. The first is, what is the Sabbath? The second, who is Jesus? And the third, why does it matter for us? What is the Sabbath? Who is Jesus? And why does it matter for us? And my main idea, the main idea of this text, as it is for much of the whole book of Mark, is that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, so we can rest in him. So first question, what is the Sabbath? This is not something that we talk about every day, and we're certainly at a disadvantage being over 3,000 years later and living in America. So allow me to lead you through a few texts about the Sabbath, where it began. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so go all the way to the left. And it's the second chapter. And if you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the small ones inside the text are the verses. We'll use that to refer so you know how to follow along. Genesis chapter 2. And this is just after God had created the earth. It's his account of separating light from darkness and land from water and then filling all the spaces with creatures and animals and even man and woman. And then we come to chapter 2. And it reads, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's the first mention of the Sabbath. Now turn over to Exodus chapter 20. This is the next book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus chapter 20. And a lot happens in between these two books. God promises to Abraham to make a great people from his descendants. And then his people become captive in Egypt. And God miraculously rescues them from the hand of Pharaoh. Takes them out into the wilderness. Leads them to Sinai where he gives them his law. And it's in Exodus 20 we find the the first mention of the Ten Commandments. So look down with me at Exodus 20, chapter 8, verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So God gives his people a weekly holiday modeled after his work in creation. Just as he worked for six days creating the world and then rested on the seventh, Israel is to work six days and then rest imitating God. They set apart the seventh day. That's what it means to be holy or to make something holy, to set it apart, to make it distinct. And that becomes the pattern for their week. Now turn over to Exodus 31, 11 chapters later. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. More details on the Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. But what I'm getting at is that the Sabbath is not something that would be taken lightly by any Israelite. It's the fourth commandment, and it happens to be the longest of all Ten Commandments. And it's one of a few very specific signs that separated Israel as a nation from the rest of the nations of the world, circumcision being the other one. And it was given to the people not just to mark them apart from the nations, but also for them to remember that it was the Lord who created them and it was the Lord who redeemed them. So their rest on the Sabbath day is faith in action, as it requires trust that God will provide for their every need. 
So the Sabbath was a matter of worship to God and a sign of identity for Israel, the punishment of which was death. So it's no wonder the Pharisees would get upset and take Jesus' actions very seriously on the Sabbath. But what is it that they really get upset about? Why do they have the response as strongly as they do? There are two reasons people point to that they think uh, are offensive to the Pharisees. The first thing that most people say is that it's because they're traveling, they're going on their way. And there was a rule that you could travel no further than 1,999 feet. That was the line. 2,000, you're not resting. That's too far. But I actually don't think that's the reason because they don't mention it. And because wherever the Pharisees are, they seem to be in close enough proximity to see them. So likely, it's not that they're going a far distance. In chapter 3, they enter the synagogue, so it could be that they're on their way to the synagogue. Maybe they were both going there to worship. But the disciples are hungry, and that's more likely what the Pharisees consider to be unlawful. Believe it or not, eating from the crops was okay. It wasn't considered stealing. There was a Uh, a provision for that in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 23 that actually required farmers to leave the edges of their crops unharvested so that travelers could eat of it when they were in need. Most likely, the things that they're upset about is that they would consider plucking the grain a form of harvesting or collecting. So, for example, after the institution of the law, this seems very foreign to us, so I'm going to try to parse it out a little bit for you. After the institution of the law, there would have been lots of squabbles about what it meant to work and not work. And so Pharisees and others came up with 39 different classes of work and a plethora of regulations to follow on the Sabbath, uh, which you can find in Jewish writings such as the Mishnah. And within those writings is a rule that says you can't harvest on the Sabbath. Well, just to give you an example of what it was like to follow some of their customs, uh, I'll just list a few of them for you. And you should know that the Sabbath began starting Friday at sunset all the way to Saturday at sunset. So if someone began cooking a meal before sunset on Friday, but they didn't allow themselves enough time to finish the meal by sunset, they were not allowed to finish preparing the meal or eat the meal. It was forbidden to correct a dislocated hand or a foot, If someone was injured, they could postpone it to the following day. Uh, If a garment tore, they were only allowed to sew a single stitch. uh, and not They couldn't tear two stitches and, and continually sew. They could only sew once and then have to wait to the following day. It was forbidden to repair a fallen roof. And if a building collapsed, you were permitted to do just enough work to discover whether or not there were any survivors. If there were survivors, you could do the minimum amount of work to save them. If there were casualties, you were required to leave their bodies until the following day to retrieve them. The general rule was basically that you couldn't do anything that wasn't absolutely necessary that would result in a loss of life if left undone. So as Jesus and his disciples are making their way, the disciples decide to snag a snack on the nearby field, which may mean, by the way, that, that they were not eating exorbitantly. Uh, a snack of grain is not exactly a deluxe feast. 
by any measure. But they're eating the bare minimum, perhaps, to make it to the synagogue. Well, either way, the Pharisees are seeking to catch Jesus in the wrong, doing unlawful things, and they think he has, so they accuse him of violating the Sabbath. And this is no small accusation. So Jesus and his disciples, uh, as they're going, he actually asks why his disciples are doing that, and that's just an accusation of Jesus, because he's their leader. And it was just understood that the leader was responsible for what the disciples were doing. Now, and how does Jesus respond? Have you ever read? Which is a great response. Jesus is like, have you read the Old Testament before? And that's actually a good model for us to know how to live our lives. Whether responding to others or just seeking for answers ourselves, we should draw wisdom from the scriptures. We believe, after all, that God has spoken to us by his word through his spirit. And as 2 Peter 1 says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll find the answers you're looking for by opening to a random page, though the Holy Spirit could do that. But we should seek and search the scriptures. In order to recall the Bible in our own lives, we have to know the Bible. A pastor in England in the 1800s named J.C. Ryle said this, Let us remember, however, that if we are to use the Bible as our Lord did, we must know it well and be acquainted with its contents. We must read it diligently, humbly, perseveringly, and prayerfully, or we shall never find its texts coming to our aid in the time of need. To use the sword of the Spirit effectually, we must be familiar with it and have it often on our minds. There's no royal road to the knowledge of the Bible. It does not come to a man by intuition. The book must be studied, pondered, prayed over, searched into, and not left always lying on a shelf carelessly, looked at now and then. It is the students of the Bible, and they alone, who will find it a weapon ready in the, hand, in the day of battle. Sometimes it seems like we can look just about anywhere else except the Bible for answers, for wisdom in our lives. Just recently there was a pastor who was interviewed about the news of recent abuse scandals and the reporter asked the pastor if he had believed that God was speaking to him during these times. And the pastor rightfully responded by saying, I believe God is speaking and God has spoken about these things. Referring, of course, to scripture. Brothers and sisters, when you read and listen to scripture, you read and listen to God speaking. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. We read in Psalm 1 how the blessed man walks not in the way of sinners nor stands in the seat of scoffers, stands in the, how does it go? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. Always write down the verses you're referencing. And on his law he meditates day and night. So what do you do if you're in a situation and you don't know if Scripture speaks to your situation? You don't know what God's Word has to say about it. Well, life is complicated. 
That may happen, and the Bible may not mention your exact specific situation in life. I would encourage you to ask other Christians. Even better if you can ask someone more mature and godly than you. They may show you something that you've forgotten, or they may show you something new that you've never seen before. Pray that we would be a church that rehearses God's word to one another and sharpens each other. And pray for wisdom. Ask for others to pray for you. I find that through my own prayers, the Lord brings a lot of clarity into my life. Back to Jesus and his response. Jesus refers to a specific event in history, to the, the life of David, Israel's king. And that event can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now during that time, Saul was king and David was just announced as the future king of Israel. And of course, Saul didn't like that, so Saul was hunting David down to kill him. David was fleeing with a few men and came through a city called Nob, where he found the tabernacle. And he asked the priests if there was any bread to eat. And this is special bread, this is not normal bread. Uh, This is bread specifically that is unlawful for anyone other than the priest to eat. But the priest bestows mercy on David and allows him to eat in a dire situation. And he gives, he eats the bread himself and gives the remainder to his men. And nothing is is ever said about this event negatively. That's what's interesting. It's a unique situation with a unique person in history. And that brings us to my second question. Who is Jesus? Why would Jesus bring up the story of David? Because Jesus accomplishes multiple things by mentioning King David. First, he silences the Pharisees because they would never call the greatest king of Israel unlawful, except for in the case of Uriah. He's the most important king in Israel's history, a man after God's own heart, the one who wrote Psalm 1, which we read today. Someone who, by their standards, would be considered lawful. Well, Jesus mentions David demonstrating that there are exceptions to the norm. Now, I don't think, I should be clear, I don't think that Jesus and his disciples are actually violating the Sabbath in any way. He's not violating Torah. What he is violating is the rules that the Pharisees added to the Ten Commandments. So David shows that there are certain people in certain situations that require a diverging from the norm. And Jesus here, It's just showing an example in history that is similar to his current situation. Now, you know what else Jesus' mention of David does? It it invites a comparison between David and his men and Jesus and his disciples. We know David is the forerunner to Israel's everlasting king. We know that Jesus is a descendant of David himself and that he comes to sit on the throne forever forever. And so we have another great Christological statement hidden here in which Jesus points to David and says, if it's okay for David, then surely it's okay for me because I am greater than David. And then Jesus says something even more shocking. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What was Jesus getting at by saying this? He's saying the Sabbath is not more important than humanity. 
that the Sabbath was given to Israel as a gift to bless them, not to hinder them. The Pharisees seem to have lost sight of that original purpose of the Sabbath, to rest from work, to refresh themselves, to worship the Lord. Instead, they were so concerned about doing the wrong thing that they turned the Sabbath into a day of don'ts, a day of too many rules to keep track of, rather than a day to remember the maker of the universe and to reflect on God's provision over them. The Pharisees assumed that any activity was wrong on the Sabbath, even if it helped others. That's much clearer in the next paragraph, in chapter 3, 1 through 6, when Jesus asks them specifically whether it's lawful to do good or to save a life on the Sabbath. And Jesus proves that his point, he proves his point that man is more important by healing a man whose infirmity certainly wasn't life-threatening. Because of their rules, though, the Sabbath was transformed from a gift to a burden and a hindrance to to doing good. So there are some parallel uh, from this event to our lives today. There's some parallel from the Sabbath to the Lord's Day. Uh, We're not Sabbatarians simply mimicking the Sabbath on Sunday instead of Saturday. But we can apply some of the principles to us. Namely, the Lord's Day and the church body is a gift. It's to bless you and equip you, not to burden you. So I'm sure there may be times in life where you're just not feeling spiritual or you don't want to come to church, whatever it may be. And those may be the most important times for you to come and sit under God's word preached and to sing with other believers. We should also treat Sunday unique to the rest of the week in the same way. The Lord's Day is not just another Saturday. Here in America we have two weekly holidays, don't we? No, we should... Instead, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with our new family. Set it aside for spiritual things. How are some ways that you can do that in your life? This might mean making sure, if you're a student, making sure you get all your homework and studying done through the week before Sunday so that you don't have a list of tasks to do to get in the way. If you're doing overtime at work, it may mean working a little bit extra through the week so that you have more time on Sunday. It may mean working hard to be available for your family. Now, there's nothing wrong with a recreational activity if, uh, if that's one way that you find rest. But don't let them distract you from spiritual things. The purpose of the Lord's Day is to think about the spiritual and to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ. These are good gifts from God, not burdens. God wants his people to flourish spiritually, and he's given us the means to do that. Well, what does Jesus say next? Something even more shocking than before. Look down at verse 28, and here's the main point of the passage. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus has said some pretty shocking things so far in Mark's gospel. Do you remember them? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But here, Jesus says something he's not said before. And he says something unique. What does it mean to be the Lord of something? It means to be authoritative over it. To be the Lord of the Sabbath 
means to be the author of the Sabbath. And because the Sabbath is rooted in creation, to be the author of the Sabbath is to be the author of creation. So Jesus is not just simply saying, I have some authority. Jesus, by saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath, is saying he's the Lord of creation. And Jesus' point is this, that if the Sabbath was given as a blessing to humanity, then certainly the Lord of humanity is Lord of the Sabbath. It's an astonishing statement. And because it is so, we almost miss the fact that he refers to himself once again as the Son of Man. That's a divine title rooted in Old Testament prophecy, specifically Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the first among men. It focuses on Christ's humanity, yet his authority and his justice. So in one foul swoop, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of the Sabbath and establishes his own authority over it. That's who Jesus is, the Lord of the Sabbath. Question three. Why does it matter for us? That again in chapter three, verse one, likely means that it's either another Sabbath or simply that Jesus has this same kind of conflict with the Pharisees. This time, they're in a public synagogue, and the text tells us that they were watching Jesus closely. And those words have an added emphasis. They're hanging on the edge of their seats, watching him, watching intently, hanging in suspense. Well, what does Jesus do during this tense moment? He calls the man with the withered hand to come forward to the middle of the synagogue. Which is kind of interesting because who knows if this guy even wanted to be healed. In other miracles, other people are coming to Jesus. But this time Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to himself. And his withered hand probably was the result of a birth defect or a disease or some kind of injury. But unlike other instances of healing... Uh, This was not a radically life-changing infirmity. But Jesus calls him, and then he decides to make a point to the Pharisees. Why does he do that? Because he knows their hearts. Earlier in chapter 2, Jesus knows their thoughts when he forgives the paralytic. He addresses them. Remember we talked about how the other people watching in the room would just have no idea what's going on because Jesus just out of nowhere confronts them. Well, here too, Jesus knows what's on their mind, and so he takes action. And he asks them a piercing question. And this question that he asks, really, this, this should have been so easy for them to answer. This was such a softball question. He asks if it's lawful to do good or evil, to save a life or to take a life. There should be no question, of course, that it, it's of course good to do good and to save a life on the Sabbath, But they're so self-righteous that they don't even want to admit that it is okay. They're completely silent. And so Jesus gets angry, furious even. And what we see is righteous anger towards their hard hearts because they have no compassion on other people. Jesus can see their hearts and how they only want to find fault in him, and clearly they have no concern for the suffering of others around them. And there's a great irony. I don't know if you caught it. There's a great irony in this scene. 
because Jesus asks whether it's lawful to do good or to do harm, which pertains to what he's about to do to the man with the withered hand. And then he asks if it's lawful to save a life or kill, which pertains to their response to him. Jesus, who is above the law and is, is condemned for doing what is good and right on the Sabbath, and they who see themselves as lawful plot to kill Jesus on the same day. He asks if it's lawful to kill, knowing that they would plot to do so if he healed the man. So Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand, and he heals him. His hand is visibly restored, and he goes on his way. And what do the Pharisees do when this happens? They immediately begin plotting to kill Jesus. They don't follow up with the man. They don't worship Christ as they should have. Instead, they begin a a bipartisan act to destroy the Son of Man. The Herodians mentioned here were likely wealthy political leaders, supporters or descendants of, of Herod the Great, and normally at odds with the Pharisees. They normally didn't get along. But here, they conspire together against the Son of Man. But brothers and sisters, what does all this have to do with us? Because not for a second did Jesus lose control of the situation. He knew exactly what was on their hearts and how they would respond to him healing the man on the Sabbath, and he did so still. It's a subtle reminder that Jesus knew what his mission was here on earth. Jesus knew that he would eventually go to the cross and carefully planned each step of the way. I don't know what's going on in your heart this morning, but Jesus does. What I want you to know is that Jesus knows every hypocritical and self-righteous thought you've ever had. But Jesus isn't just angry at their sin. He's grieved. So Jesus, just as he was grieved in the synagogue with these religious leaders, is grieved over your sin as well. And he didn't stand by and do nothing about it. Jesus came to live the perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for you and I. He rose three days later conquering death so that anyone who believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. That forgiveness, that mercy that we sang of earlier can be yours too if you turn from your sin and trust in him. How should we think about the Sabbath today? Since Jesus honored the Sabbath, should we continue to observe it? There are some Christians who believe uh, that's the case, and there are other Christians who believe that we honor it simply on Sunday instead of Saturday. And while there are some healthy principles we can implement, that isn't what we see in the Bible. The New Testament actually never refers to the Lord's Day as being a new Sabbath. Instead, when the New Testament speaks of rest, it points forward to our eternal rest in heaven. The rest that we enter into after the atonement of the blood of Jesus. One theologian said that Christ timed his death perfectly so that on the seventh day he rested in the tomb and then on the eighth day rose, creating a new era. Romans 3.28 says for We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works 
of the law. The Bible says that we are set free from our record of debt and its legal demands because Christ nailed it to the cross. Christians are no longer old under the old covenant. The new covenant is new. Remember Jesus said, new wine, fresh wine, with new wineskins. With Christ coming, the greatest commandments are to love God and to love one another. That's why it matters for us. Because this event shows us a comparison, sorry, the compassion Jesus has on sinners. It shows Christ's concern to heal us, and it serves as a reminder that just as Christ restored this man's hand, he will restore the whole earth and, gave us, and give us heavenly bodies that last throughout all eternity. That rest spoken of in the Sabbath is the rest in Psalm 95 that humanity departed from when they were exiled from the garden. And it's the rest that we look forward to in the new creation. In our passage, Christ shows that he is Lord over the Sabbath, Lord over creation, and that he came to do the ultimate good, to die on a Roman cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved, providing a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Through his death and resurrection, we can have new life in him. And we look forward to that eternal rest. It's the Lord of the Sabbath who has secured that rest by his own sacrifice on the cross. So when you think of the Sabbath, think of the rest that was lost, the rest that we long for, but the rest that is secured in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the author of creation, as the giver of the law. We thank you that the law has showed us our depravity and our sin. But we praise you that the law no longer condemns those who have trusted in your Son because he fulfilled it in every way and upheld it perfectly. Jesus, we praise you because all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to you. And you promise that you are with us to the end of the age. Help us to be more like you. And keep us from self-righteous pride. Our only boast is you. And in your name we pray. Amen.